We're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I think I told you guys 1 through 10, but 1 through 11. And um, my goal as you're turning there, some of you, and if you're looking for it, it's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And if those aren't helpful markers, then Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. Okay, so you get to the Old Testament, Malachi, and then count backwards from Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. He's a little guy there, two chapters. Uh, and my goal is that I wanted to give you some Old Testament because we've had a lot of New Testament. Uh, but there's some, uh, some pertinent things there, I hope. So we'll spend probably the month of January in Haggai. And then we'll, we'll circle around to some other things that we have not yet finished. And so... Would you stand as I read Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We confess and believe that your word is living and active. Even these words penned and said so many centuries ago that they are appointed now for us by your spirit, written for us in your, by your spirit. So would we hear in faith by the power of your spirit, would this word go forth in the power of God to work your will in our hearts and minds and lives? And so, Father, now I pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, God, would you speak to us? God of glory, Lord of hosts, would you speak? Father in heaven. Would you speak to us? Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday I did a wedding in Spartanburg. 
And it was fun. It was a long day with the kids getting back. And I, I, was, I told some of you beforehand, uh, they went from really, really darlings during the service. And then they, two thirds of them fell asleep. I'll give you a dollar if you guess who, who didn't fall asleep. Uh, and uh, the, the one that we needed to know, the, the James Allen didn't fall asleep. Evelyn and Henry fell asleep. And then we get home, and they were these beautiful, wonderful, dressed nicely, did great in the wedding. And we get home, and I don't know, attack of the body snatchers or something, because those were not my children uh, when we got home at like 9 o'clock last night, trying to get them in, dressed. They were. I love them. But goodness gracious. Uh, But during the ceremony, these were dear friends of ours, family friends, and I counseled uh, in my, my homily... And if, if you guys don't know what that is, it's just a short wedding sermon. Uh, I tried to keep it short. It was only like 45 minutes. And um, the, the bride was getting a little like jello legs. Not really. It was like, I don't know. I really don't know how long it was. Uh, but I counseled them. I said, the thing that's going to be toxic to your marriage is the thing that's toxic to all marriages. And it's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. And that is the uh, one of the prime expressions of sin is that we... Think of ourselves above other people. We serve our own pleasures. We serve our own preferences. We want our own desires. We want it our way. And we're, we're actually counseled to do that in our culture. And our culture has transformed marriage into a very me-centric thing. To be a consumer in the, con- in the context of the home. Right? We, we come and you, know, you don't give up your rights. You make sure that you say what you want to say and you get what you want to get. And you, whether that be uh, all, all sorts of things. If it's the house, you kind of, the number of kids you want, uh, the, the love life that you want, the type of whatever. And it's all about you or it's all about me. And in those of you who are married, uh, you know that if you live like that, it, it's not going to work well. Or marriage isn't going to function the way that it ought. There are many people who approach and live in marriage that way for years. And this isn't a wedding sermon per se. But the same plague that happens in marriages plagues our lives, selfishness. It doesn't just plague that highest of human relationships, but it plagues all of our relationships. Where we would be the center of things where we would have our desires served, where we would... And what happens when we approach relationships from the standpoint of selfishness is rather than seeking to help the other person blossom and flourish into all that they ought to be in the context of that particular relationship, not just marriage, but friendship or church membership or neighborness, neighbor, neighborliness, I don't know what the word is. But, but whatever the, the context of that relationship, rather than helping that person be what they ought to be in the context of relationship, when we approach it in our sinful capacity, fleshly status, we turn people rather than something to be encouraged and um, ad, ad, um, ad, not admonished, but admired, recognizing the dignity and the value of that person, recognizing that God has made them in, their Im, in his image and in, in his likeness, um, Gifted them and shaped them in a way to demonstrate his glory. Rather than seeing a person like that, we approach other people as commodities to be consumed. How can this person serve me? How can they make my life better? How can my neighbor not bring shame upon my property? Right? It's a whole concept of HOAs. If you're on HOA, I don't hate you. I've been there. I'll never be there again. But I was there once. 
I had people pulling up in my driveway to complain about a fence I didn't even know existed in my old neighborhood. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I, don't, I didn't bring my hammer and nails. I can't fix it. Anyways. Um, but we turn people into commodities when we approach things in selfishness. But that doesn't just happen with people. Right? We're, we're made in the context. We're made for a relationship. We're made in the image of God. And being a, a part of that, not the whole encompassing part of being in the image of God, but a piece of being in the image of God means that you're made for relationship. You're, you're built for community. You're built for connection. And though there are people and they, they, they make shows about them on Discovery Channel that just like move off into Alaska, you know, and they build, it's really remarkable. They just, they hate people. So, no, they just, they want to be away from people. But the rest of us realize that you're built for connection. You're built for friendship. You're built for love, to give and to receive love. But that relationship is not just a horizontal reality. You're not just built for a relationship with a man or a woman in marriage. You're not just built for a relationship as neighbors or as friends or as church members. But that you're built for primarily, the primarily, primary, primary relationship in your life is the vertical one. That you're built and made, designed, crafted, intentionally so by a good God for a good relationship to be enjoyed. With God, you are made for a relationship with God. Every person, anytime, made in the image of God and to be in the image of God is to be built for relationship because our God exists three and one, one and three in unity and diversity in relationship. And so you are made for relationship. But what happens When sin enters in, not only do we turn other people into commodities to be consumed, and you can apply this to the the third sort of relationship that we see Adam and Eve. When when our first parents were made, they were made for a relationship with God, relationship with one another, and relationship with creation. And what sin does when we become the kings and the queens, we commodify all of these relationships. You understand what I mean? We turn people into commodities. We turn creation into a commodity. And we turn God into a commodity to be consumed for our pleasure, for our delight, for our desires, according to our whims and passions. We do that to creation. We do that to other people. And we do that to God, to our own ruin. And to the ruin of other people. And to the ruin of creation. When we come to Haggai... This is a, uh, we're following a, a chronological Bible reading plan, right? You guys, if you need a copy, let me know, or I can send you a PDF. You can still catch up. Don't fret. It's, it's not too much. It's not like last year. I heard so many, preacher, this is so much. Four chapters. Anyways, um, I get it. Uh, but this is a, if you were to look at your Bible reading plan this year, this chronological plan, this is one of the last Old Testament books that you will read because it's very late chronologically in the life of the Old Covenant people. Uh, and so this book is, uh, but, but what makes it so fantastic, and I'll kind of give you a sort of a uh, 30,000 feet and then I'll plunge into a few things here. 
uh, that this is one of, and I've said this to Wednesday night folks, that this is one of the most uh, chronologically dense, it has the most time markers of any of the minor prophets, and it's, it's, it has so many references to particular days and particular months under particular kings that we're able to say this happened on this day, like this month, day, year. And Haggai, all of Haggai's recorded ministry happens, this whole book is, is about three and a half months. In three and a half months, under the ministry of God's word through the prophet Haggai, the people who are there, people of Israel, and we'll talk about when this is in their life in a second, but the people of Israel move from really complete selfish apathy to vigorous action, as one commentator says. They move from really only caring about themselves, particularly and in their families, to vigorously pursuing the purposes of the Lord of hosts in three and a half months. There was a a practical, laborious revival that emerges because of God's ministry through the prophet Haggai in three and a half months. Consider what God might do with us by mid-March. Consider what God might be able to do with us by Easter. That's four. Or by God's grace, planning to have another missions conference in May. What might God do between now and then? I I do not claim to be Haggai. But we do claim the same Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of angel armies, as some translations are. This is our God. The people of Israel here, and this is about 520 B.C. Uh, The Darius here is the king of Persia. This is a different Darius than is found in Nehemiah and a different Darius than that is found in Daniel. Okay. this is, this is before Nehemiah and after Daniel. It's a different Darius of the Persians. It's about 520 B.C. And this first verse is on August 29th, 520 B.C. I just find that fascinating that we're able to locate it so exactly. The word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, if you've been perusing Matthew chapter 1, which I know you all do during Christmas time, you, all of you flip open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, to, the, uh, to the, uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus, right? I'm going to sing the song one day for you. I'm not going to do it today. There's a song. But Shealtiel and Zerubbabel show up in Matthew chapter 1. Go home, do your homework, go find it. So that these are in the lineage of the kings of Judah. But notice that he's described as a governor. Because here we are, this is after the exile. You remember, uh, the, the, we have Solomon, we have one kingdom. After Solomon, we have two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is uh, taken over and virtually obliterated by the Assyrian Empire 720s. BC, so about 200 years before Haggai. And then you have the southern kingdom, Judah, taken over by. Anybody, Bible history? Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? 
right? They came and swallowed them up about 586. And so we are here. We have Haggai and a group of people who are who are, who are those who are ruling in Judah under the reign of, per, of the Persians. The Persians take over the Babylonians and you guys are getting glassy eyed. That's why I wore my glasses today so I could see you fall asleep. OK. <laughs> so uh, so that they, they are this is a post exilic existence that they are not a sovereign nation anymore. They are not who they thought they would be. They are not in charge of their, their business. They're not in charge of their finances. In fact, they are they're vassals under this greater kingdom. And God yet comes to them and says, even though things are not as you think they ought to be, you are too focused on yourself rather than on me. This is like the general gist of it. In my Bible, under the title Haggai, I have Matthew 6.33 written underneath it. Anybody remember what Matthew 6.33 is? Somebody, somebody's whispering it to themselves over here. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. But rather the people who are now existing in what ought to be God's land, God's people are focused on their paneled housing. Now you, you might think paneled housing sounds so... 1970s, the wood panels. We've got some. We can show you. It's a joke, guys. Don't get offended. It's, just, it's over there. The wood paneled interior. And if that's in your house, it's also I'm not trying to be. It's in my, I'm pretty sure it's in my parents' house, too. Um, but this was a, a, a picture of affluence and of, of time and of skill. They didn't make these panels uh, these wood panels in a factory, they were made by hand. And so they were spending time building their own kingdoms, building, building their own houses, their, their own families, and building their own affluence to the detriment of the purposes of God. They were pursuing selfishness in their relationship with God in, as His covenant people rather than pursuing faithfulness. And what happens in churches when we do the same? What happens not just in individuals within the context of churches, but what happens with churches together when they are focused solely on building ourselves rather than building Jesus' kingdom? We commodify that which belongs to God and is meant for God's glory. We commodify worship. Now, what happens there? That's a, that is a sermon that I cannot preach right now. But where we turn churches into religious strip malls for the distribution of religious goods and services. And so if we're able to offer you something that pleases you, offer you something that checks your boxes for your station in life or whatever, then you, then I, oh, this is all great and wonderful. But if we don't, then you'll go to another church that's able to do that. That's the commodification of worship. That's the commodification of Christ's church. I'm not saying that Jesus is never going to call you to other churches. Or he might call you to this church. Or he might call, I'm not, you can, you listen to the voice of Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. But if we commodify the things of God, then we will be focused on individual kingdoms, which aren't really kingdoms, to the detriment of the kingdom of God. And what's happened in our American consumeristic culture is exactly this. 
and churches have bankrupted themselves, if not financially, um, perhaps morally or some, some other way, theologically, in order to distribute and have better religious goods and services that are more pleasing to this present culture. So you have pastors who ride in on dirt, dirt bikes and do backflips into the pulpit. Or they ride in on rafter, like some zip line into the pulpit. Tomfoolery. I sound like such an old curmudgeon right now. <laughs> those are all great. Go do all of those things, just not in Jesus' church. Because you're winning people to something other than the gospel. And I think you said it last week. Like, what you win people with is what you win people to. And if you win people to a big show or with a big show, you got to keep them with a big show. If you win people by simply servicing all of their felt needs and felt desires, then you've got to keep that up. Rather than at some point saying, you have to, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross and follow him. There has to be self-denial, self-sacrifice, pursuing the things of Jesus if you are authentically going to live for him. You, you can't live, you cannot simultaneously live for yourself and live for Jesus. He will not be the appendix to your story. He must be the highlight and the headliner. This is what you get when I'm out of the pulpit for a couple weeks, okay? But he has to be center. And when God is not center to the life of his people... We're not talking about the Persians. We're not talking about the Greeks. We're not talking about the Babylonians. We're talking about God's covenant people who are pursuing themselves rather than God. And when that happens, all of the good things, all of the treasures that God had given them, they weren't able to enjoy them as they ought. All of these these things that were meant to bolster their worship of God turn out to subtract from their lives. What do I mean? Look at, consider your ways at the end of verse 5. Verse 6, you, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag full of holes. All of these good things actually do not satisfy you. They don't, they don't, they're not holding water. The bag is full of holes. Because what happens, Christian, when you take the gifts of God over the giver himself, all of the gifts no longer taste like gifts. All of the treasures of this world no longer are cherishable. When God is not our treasure, when he is not the centerpiece of our lives, and we're trying to exalt all of these things that he's given us in his place, all of these things will prove to be dust and wind. And you know it. You know it. When you put all of your eggs in your marriage, and you put all of your eggs on your children, and you put all of your eggs, so to speak, with your work or with the, your, uh, your, your status in society, the house that you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the friendships that you have, your clout and power in society, fill in the blank. When you put all of your stuff there, you realize, I have everything. Maybe you get to that point. I have everything the world has to offer, and yet I have nothing. I have no satisfaction. I have no joy. I have no lasting fulfillment. 
I'm not flourishing, I'm wilting. It's because you've unplugged yourself and you've commodified God and his gifts for something for you to consume. Rather than saying all of these gifts are given to me to make me adore Christ more. The gift of your marriage and and the gift that it is when you have to die to yourself in the context of marriage is meant to make you adore Christ more. The same for your kids. Like last night when I had these bug-eyed children screaming in my face. I cannot commodify my child at that moment. I have to give my life away. And I'm not trying to say I've arrived at some pedestal, but the point that I'm making, that all of these relationships find the right and proper context in our relationship with God. And if our relationship with God is corrupted or commodified, where you're seeking to make God something for your own desire, then all these other relationships will be broken too. So the problem is that they're pursuing themselves. And God says, consider your ways. This is an invitation. We've talked about the problem. Talked about the problem. What is the solution? And we'll we'll kind of press into more of this as we press into Haggai. But uh, the solution is faith walking out in repentance. God says twice here in verse 5 and also in verse 7, consider your ways. There has to be this self-evaluation, something that shows up in the New Testament several times. But to evaluate, examine yourselves and to see if you're in the faith, Paul tells the Corinthians. It's an invitation to change course. It's an invitation to quit living for ourselves. Consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Quit seeking to glorify yourself. Quit seeking for your own, quit quit living for your own pleasure and live for the glory of God and for the pleasure of God. And then and only then will you find out what it truly means to be satisfied. When When you quit trying to make yourself into something, We quit trying to prop ourselves up as something that we're not. Living for our own name and our own glory and our own kingdoms. But to forsake that idolatry of self. And to say, I'm going to live to glorify God and God alone. And that might mean that you fade. And that the only people people that remember your name are the people that are closest to you. There's a guy named, he's, he's just got a great name. His name is Count Zinzendorf. Uh, and he said that he, his ambition was to um, preach the gospel. He said it better than this, but he said, preach the gospel and die. Preach the gospel, be forgotten and die. But you live for the glory of God and his pleasure. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In everything, we make it our aim to please Him. That's a relationship with God that has has been, by God's grace, set right. Like a broken bone fixed. 
when we can say, I live for the pleasure of God and for his glory, rather than to say, God, you're after my pleasure. Because as long as you commodify God as something that's going to serve your pleasure, you will never have joy in Christ. You will never, ever, ever have joy in Christ. But until you say, I live for another, let my name be forgotten. But Jesus' reign. And then you will have joy in Christ. Consider your ways. Build the house. This is not an invitation today for us to go build a temple. It's not an invitation for you to build a new church building. We're fine. The house that's being built now in the church age is a spiritual house. First Peter chapter two, verse um, verse four and five. I'll show you what I'm talking about. As you come to him, that is Christ to the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that what, what Peter's saying is that, and you, this is, we read it elsewhere in Paul, but the house that's now being built, the temple that's now being built, is not brick, mortar, concrete, gold, wood, etc. It's people. That's exa- you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house So that you may be a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. All of those things that happened in the temple point to what God is doing in his church and his people right now. So how do we get to get about doing the business of God building his temple? Is it wood and brick and mortar? Please say no. Somebody say no. Shake your head. It's go out and build people. Just pour your life into another person so that they're built up in the faith. Pour your life out for someone in the church. But goodness gracious, go find the people. There are living stones. There are are holes in the wall of God's temple. Of people who have not yet heard or have not yet believed. Who need to hear. Who are going to be a part of the spiritual house. Be about the mission of God. You, you remain, your faces say you're unconvinced. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you have no idea exactly what I'm telling you. But I'm saying that God is making a people. He is collecting a new people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He is collecting white Americans and black Americans and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans and Chinese people and Berber people from North Africa. Fill in the blank of every tribe and tongue and people. From every ethnicity, every affinity group, God is making a new people in Jesus Christ. And it is a, simultaneously, it is, it is his body, and it is a spiritual house, the church. Because we see at the end of the book, I point you guys to the end of the book, I don't know how many times. But I saw... The evangelist John, John the Apostle says, I saw a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this is what Jesus has purchased with his blood. And so right now, 
Part of his work and mission in this world is stirring up his people to say, quit living for yourselves and living for the other. Pursue the people who are far from God as God has pursued you who were once far from him. Not enough amens. But get to work building the house. God's kingdom is populated with converted people. God's kingdom is populated with people who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and been given new life in his name, indwelt with his spirit. This is the building of his kingdom. And all of our other pieces, all of the other things that we sometimes say, this is the building of his kingdom, those things are meant to help us do that thing. To help us make disciples so to see you guys grow up. I don't mean that condescendingly, but, but that you would be, that you would blossom into the image of Christ as you're intended to be until glory. And to see Jesus do that with people that right now, Their lives are a mess. And you might not want to hang out with them and you might be scared to pass them in an alley or in a brightly lit parking lot. But those are the people. Those are the people that are meant to plug the holes in the walls of the spiritual house. And they won't come if they don't hear. And they won't hear unless we tell them. Unless we show them. What might God do? Three and a half months. Four and a half months. What might God do this year? To move us toward vigorous action for the cause of Christ in this world. Let's pray. God, we give you glory. Thank you that sometimes you use hard circumstances. You use our present cultural moment. You use upsurges of COVID, confusion in politics. So much upheaval and uncertainty surrounds us. And Lord, would you save us, even as your redeemed people, would you save us from the plague of selfishness? Selfishness that sometimes shows up believing in scarcity that we have few things rather than in the promise of Christ that we have all things. Selfishness that sometimes tells us to bunker down and batten the hatches when the gospel of Christ tells us to go. Selfishness that would have us be quiet and keep this false peace rather than a devotion to your glory that would see every man, woman, and child hear and see the good news of Christ. Lord, would you move us?
such a time as this, toward your field, toward your harvest, to build your kingdom as you build your church, Lord Jesus. Would we live for your glory, live for your pleasure, and in doing so, we would find the satisfaction nothing else can offer. I pray if there are some who have never trusted and that, God, you've brought them to the point of conviction of only living for themselves, and you've brought them to the realization that living for themselves is actually bankrupt, brings no joy, no life. Would you turn their eyes to Jesus? you turn their eyes to Jesus, the one who will forgive their sin and give them new life and new direction and new satisfaction and new lasting joy. I pray for Blaney Baptist Church. There was so much I would pray that God, would you redirect Spur us. Save us from selfish apathy. Drive us to vigorous action for the cause of Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.